Let us pray again. O God, you are a mighty fortress indeed. You are our strength in time of trouble. You are our rescuer in the midst of affliction. Deep-seated afflictions and deep-seated things in our lives that only you, Lord, can bring transformation into. And we pray now, Lord, as we approach your word once again, that, Lord, you will be present among us. That indeed we will see your glory this morning. That, Lord, you will show us your power and that you accomplish your purpose through your word this morning. Be with my mouth, through your spirit, for the glory of your name, O God. May you be exalted among us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there was a young lad who was always in trouble. The parents were called once again to meet the the president of the school, the principal, to deal with another of the things that this son had done. And the principal asked the parents, I want to hear what you have to say about your son. And so the father thought, okay, what possible defense I can give this time about my child's behavior. However, the, the principal proceeded giving some positive affirmation about their son, this junior high troublemaker, as he was called. And the father, after that list, said, okay, but let's now hear the bad things. What is it that my son has done this time? But the principal said, no, that's all. That's all I wanted to talk about. It's a little bit of a puzzle. He comes back home, and he goes to his son and repeats the conversation. And all of a sudden, because of that positive affirmation, this troublemaker behavior begins to change. All because that teacher started to look past the negatives to see the potential in this child. How many of us, like this parent, can see the good right before our eyes? We focus only on the strict observance of certain man-made rules in our mind. And we coerce our children to guilt and we deem someone a troublemaker despite the way that God's grace can change that. In a similar sense, friends, today we come to John chapter 5 and we see religious people who approach Jesus without faith. And in fact, disbelief and they only see trouble in Jesus instead of seeing Jesus as the Son of God what they saw is just a man who is there to stir up the waters. That is where we see in John chapter 5. We begin in chapter 5, a new section, uh, which opens a series of new miracles. This is the third time Jesus does a miracle. If you've been with us in the past weeks, we saw the wedding of Canaan, and then this last Sunday, the healing of this rich, young, noble woman, or noble man, from his sickness. And now we have this third time. You remember that the Samaritan woman had received the message of Jesus to come to the living water. Now instead we come to this troublesome waters we could call them. Jesus is stirring up the water of this pool of Bethesda. Stagnant waters of unbelief of the Jewish leaders. 
Last time there was a rich man who got healed. Today it's a poor paralytic man who gets healed. That makes the point that Jesus' witness is going out to every portion of society. Other gospels do not mention this healing. The closest parallel is the healing of another paralytic in Galilee. A similar illness, debilitating miscellaneous, and a similar opposition from the religious leaders. Matthew 9, Mark 2, and 5, Luke 5. But the focus again of this miracles, if you remember last time, remains the divine qualities and essence of the miracle maker. And the fundamental goal of the miracle is faith and trust in this Son of God, God on earth, God made flesh. Sadly, this miracle doesn't have any of that positive response. That a healing apart from the, any faith, even in the person who is healed, becomes pointless. So that Jesus gives a warning. And this healing opens the opposition, the rising opposition between Jesus and the religious establishment of his day. This is the beginning of a conflict that will ultimately lead to Jesus being brought to the cross. And what we see here is that while desperate people receive healing, the proud rejects the healer, Jesus Christ. And we have a stirring of the water in the sense that Jesus stirs up the water in two ways here. The first is by healing this paralytic by the waters but also by stirring up controversy with the religious leaders. So let us begin by looking at the way in which Jesus stirs up the water by healing this uh, paralytic man. Verses 1 through 9 tells us of this powerful pool of Bethesda. You have there in verse 1 and 2, after this, the healing in Capernaum in Galilee that we saw last week, now there's another feast of the Jews which necessitate Jewish people to go three times a year to Jerusalem so Jesus goes back to Judea and this possibly refers to the feast of Pentecost because last time Jesus was celebrating the Passover 40 days have passed and Jesus goes to Jerusalem and there near the temple there's this strange pool by the sheep gate uh, which is called Bethesda however older manuscripts calls this Bethsada which means house of the flowing, because there is a flowing of water that there in the five porticos in front of this pool, there's a great crowd, possibly hundreds of people, who are invalid, who are blind, who are crippled, who are paralyzed. I mean, imagine, this is a very pitiful, ugly sight. It's like getting to a stage of starvation where people are just desperate to get healed and mind you medicine back then was not as developed there was no hospital and people who had no way to heal were desperate and so they gathered together in this pool because they have nowhere else to turn for their sickness and they're waiting our text says for a certain movement verse 3 or bubbling or troubling of the waters now, verse 4 might not be included in your Bibles, as I read from the New King James, but some of the earlier manuscripts omit this verse. However, verse 7 speaks again of the same issues of water stirring up, and my fear is that 
some of the, uh, the, the, the critical edition of the scripture take it away because it's kind of referring to a supernatural event and they wanted to avoid anything super, remotely supernatural perhaps. But again, whatever we make of this verse 4, we have an angel because popularly was believed that this water had curative powers. And at a certain time, from time to time, he will come and trouble or disturb the waters. And the person that steps in first in the water was miraculously made well. It's almost like a magic spot. A superstitious coming into this water. Hey, I'm going to get my healing. Now, commentators differ on how to interpret this pool of Bethesda. But in verse 5, you have the, the powerless paralytic that comes there in the midst of this desperate pitiful scene here is the worst case the person who has been there the longest the person who is most desperate a certain man who is has an infirmity who is invalid which refers to a debilitating sickness we hear in verse 7 that people are passing on top of his body to get to the water which tells you whatever sickness he had, it was probably paralyzing to his feet. He couldn't walk. He was a paralytic. He cannot even walk to the pool in time for this bubbling of the water, this magical uh, last hope that he's clinging on to be healed. It's a lingering disorder that not only caused suffering, but perhaps has brought him and many others there in the pool to poverty. I mean, our text says in verse 5, 38 years that this man has been in this condition of being paralyzed for 38 years, almost 40 years, which for us is half of our life. But back then, it is as much as people could live. Life expectancy was far shorter. This is in his entire life. Can you imagine? This is an incredible long time. Picture this, this man probably was a child when finally he injured himself. We don't know the details, but possibly no doctor could heal him. And so they gave him no solution to his sickness. And there he stood as a child, probably wanting to play with the other children, but he couldn't. Possibly he became a financial burden on his family so that he was led into poverty. And day after day, things get worse. He goes into the street and starts to living out of alms. And, and then he hears that in Jerusalem there is this pool. And he crawls himself because he cannot walk. He doesn't have any, anyone to help him to get to this pool. His last hope. And year after year, he seeks to enter the pool. He seeks maybe. He's still hanging on to the possibility that maybe I will get healed. Only to find himself and his hair gets wider and wider year after year. And he seeks to the water, but he's crippled, so he never makes it to this magical bubbling. People are walking over him. He's so desperate, but he still clings to the possibility that even in, in all the pathetical ex expectation that maybe I can get healed if I just go in time year after year. Season after season, winter after winter, summer after summer, until, verse 6, here comes Jesus. And notice what verse 6 says, Jesus saw him 
He saw all of his helplessness. There he stand there laying on the ground. And he knew. Jesus knew all about his problem. He knew his situation. He knew he had been attending that pool for years. He knew that he had been in infirmity for a very, very long time. All of his life. Jesus speaks the one who has been sick for the longest. The most desperate case. The one who has been in that pool forever. So long. That the question comes almost like a hurtful question to him. As Jesus says, do you want to be made well? Do you wish? Do you have a determination? You are in earnest about being recovered. Are you? Think about it. After 40 years, you have never walked. Jesus is almost reviving this man's hopes and expectations after disappointments, after disappointments, which is almost impossible to see any change in his situation. He's seeking to awake his attention, and the answer, which should be an obvious and painful yes, wouldn't he? But is that even possible? So this grouchy old man feels this question is pointless and he focuses instead on the obstacle. He binds God's help to his own thoughts and he says, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. I'm alone. No one cares for me. I have no friends. No help. He thinks maybe this Jesus may help him to jump in the water next time. Because no sooner I come and another comes and passes before me and tramples over me and, and, and goes first. He's the last desperate loser of the situation. And so he's almost implying, Jesus, would you take me into the water this time? But again, Jesus' answer is, is a no. Verse 8. It's a flat no. He doesn't take him to wait to the next stirring of the water of a supposed angel, which perhaps is an that Jesus dismisses this whole practice of coming into this water as a superstitious practice. That he's so desperate that he's going to any possible element of religion, even the most pathetic, but he's saying, you, you don't need that. And I know that, and growing up Catholic, there's a spot in southern France, the Pool of Fat- Fatima. That the Virgin Mary supposedly gives healing to the waters as whoever has sickness goes through the water. And this is the last hope of people who are desperate and however need to realize that all you need is right there in front of you and it's Jesus Christ. All you need is to place your faith in the word of Christ which in this case is a powerful word. It says, rise, take your bed and walk. He takes his mattress. He had lived there for years. And Jesus is saying, that life is over. What you need is not in this pool. And you follow and walk. And this is the only hint here for us that maybe he has a beginning of faith because he obeys. He instantly obeys and instantly he is healed on the spot. That makes this miracle sudden and undeniable for everyone who saw. Because this is a big crowd at the pool. 
The only instance, and again, this is a beginning of faith. He obeys the instruction of Christ and he is made well. He takes his bed and walks just like Jesus told him to. See that? The, Jesus is bringing healing to the most desperate need of this man. Even when it led him so powerful, so powerless to seek the wrong matter, remedies instead of Jesus and his word. So we see here is that God knows. And also that God has compassion on us. He knows and cares about all of our troubles. He knows everything about you, your thoughts, your pain, your disappointment, your desperation. The writer of the hymn, I was meditating this past week, Does Jesus Care? The person who wrote that hymn, he wrote that after the third sibling in the family died. And he writes this word, Does Jesus care when I said goodbye to the dearest on earth to me? Oh, yes, he cares. I know his heart is touched with my grief. Friends, just like this man who for all of his life has been in that desperation, in that brokenness, Jesus cares. However, this is true. That his grace and his healing make sense only for a needy person. Not the one who says, oh, I'm doing fine. I'm okay. I'm not, I got everything I need. I don't need God. I, I'm not, I don't see myself as a sinner. We'll see later in the second point that the self-righteous react to this miracle in this way. No, it is to the brokenhearted, to the humbled by suffering, to the one who has patiently grown under the weight of afflictions, who feels like I'm born only to die. I'm brought to the end of myself by a thousand trials. What is God up to here? Friend, as hard and hopeless as it looks, that's exactly the broken ground where the seed of God's word can penetrate and produce good fruit. And it is there that Jesus has compassion on you in the misery of miseries. It is there that He brings healing to your miserable situation, no matter how long it has been this way. No matter how big an obstacle may look like. No matter how much bitterness you pile up through the years. And you see no solution. There, God is moved by your misery and begins to have pity on you, to have mercy on you. Because God is not heartless. His heart is moved from our sufferings. He is willing to bring a solution and the power of God can easily remove the obstacle out of the way. And therefore, if Jesus was so compassionate, we must reflect His compassion. That God, that we must pray that Jesus gives us eyes to see. The things that we often keep missing, if you were there in Sunday school, we, we mentioned the episode of the Samaritan, the good Samaritan, and the, the, the religious people like the Levite and the scribe who passed the person and did nothing. But the pagan Samaritan took care that God opens and gives us His love for broken people, His arms for the brokenhearted, those who look far beyond God's reach, and yet they're not. That God has not forgotten them. That we becomes His hands and feet. Why? Because we have the good news. That we know the ultimate hope to their hopelessness. That Jesus can change their heart and give them a new heart. And can grant them an eternity with Him. And so we share the gospel. 
But friends, have you ever felt, or perhaps you know people who at this very point in time feel like this man? Think about a person who went to school and everyone was making fun of him. Or a person who feels a failure because he never had that job, he never had that college, he never had that degree, and at work people took advantage, or friends or a spouse betrayed him terribly. Or maybe there's a problem that makes you not as good as other people. Maybe, maybe there's a permanent depression, a sickness that doesn't allow you to do the things that you used to be, or a thorn in the flesh that is haunting you for years. And no friend is found to even care. To ask how are you and no human help is found. Perhaps you sought remedies, but they were remedies that were pointless. Momentary relief and hopes that then soon fail. Even a superstitious form of religion you've sought answered here, but they have no power to transform the person who is needy. And friends, growing up in Roman Catholicism, that's... I got my share of holy blessed water and places of pilgrimages that are unable to deliver the life and the transformation that they promise. But Jesus can. If you just look and listen to Him in His Word, if you drink the living water we saw weeks ago, you don't need to go to the broken cisterns of this life that leaves you at point zero, that cannot deliver. How many of us sought remedying things in this life? Broken relationship, money, more, even a passion or hobby or interest, worldly pleasure. We hope for joy and the removal of your brokenness, but it didn't deliver. Sometimes even going to health and medicine, like I I thought this week as I was reading of King Asa. Who was a good king, but in his disease, in his deathbed, he did not seek God, but he sought the physicians. Or even trying to find life in worldly forms of Christianity. Void of the good news. The health and wealth gospel. Or even here, you know, close to Nashville. We got this country music kind of God. And it's like, that is not, that is void of any life transforming power. That the good news of Jesus Christ that give us. All of this fails us. And we live in constant delusion after that. But I'm telling you. You even can go to church 40 years. And still remain dead in your sins. When you're going to the only one however. Who comprehends and can change. And cares for you. That is Jesus. You entrust your life to God. You turn to him with your problems. You wait for one word from the master. To be enough to free you from the burden of your sin. You obey him when he says just do what he says. Just go and rise up from your rubble of disappointment. And that leads you to embrace his good news. That is the dimension of the gospel that we little talk about. Which actually is part of the entire mission of Jesus. Christ is God made flesh. Not only took your sin in his body at the cross. But Isaiah 53. He took also your infirmity. He bore your sicknesses. What does that mean? That is salvation redeems the creation that was fallen, broken by sin. That is mercy and compassion. It doesn't mean, don't misunderstand, that now you become free of all sickness just because you're a believer. Although at times, like here, God is pleased to do so. You still live in the hope that all things will be made well. That God will give you A completely new body, a resurrected and glorified body. 
and there will be no more death, no more sicknesses. And while this, is, this healing is not the gospel, it's the picture of the gospel because by his wounds you are healed. You think about Ben-Hur, the, the, my favorite scene of that old Ben-Hur is when the Christ dies on the cross and the, the blood of Christ flows through that hill and, and you have these leper women that, that are healed. And it's, it's the picture of what the gospel does. He took our, our sicknesses and, and he redeems broken creation. And he, he then, through his power, raises us to life. He says, I rise and walk. Turn and live. Immediately, sovereignly, he gives muscles and legs for us to obey. Gives us a new heart. But you see, spiritual sickness is the real issue God addresses in this story. That you are healed from the bondage and sickness and power of a greater bondage, which is the bondage of sin. And therefore, healing is confirming the truth of God's message of salvation that stirs your faith in Christ. That just as Christ arose from the dead, if you place your trust in Him, by faith, you will be raised. Can you imagine a place with no more death, no more sickness? And that is what is offered to us in the gospel. No more death. But many, as we see our second point, verses 9 to the end of the of this section are unwilling to receive this hope. And so Jesus, yes, stirs up the water by healing some, but he also stirs up the water by causing controversy for those who do not believe. It seems like Jesus is breaking the tradition of man. Verses 9 says that this, John says, happened on a Sabbath. Here's the complication in a story. Here is the breaking point that in the midst of a celebration, imagine if we're having a revival and the FBI comes in and says, no, you're violating the law of the land and ruins everything. That is what the Jewish leaders are doing. So they say, it is not lawful. You're doing something illegal. As if the, the Old Testament law was forbidding you from taking this bed and walk. And notice they probably were in the crowd, they probably just witnessed the miracle, and they are telling him he's sinning. They're just focusing on the external, man-made-up rules. Okay, they are trying to apply the Old Testament command to rest on the Sabbath. But they are overly strict. And they're saying that picking up a mattress equals work. That is very ironic because, again, the mattress is the instrument of sleep and rest. Some Jews today, you go into their houses, they, they think that by turning the lights on, you're already breaking the Sabbath. You, you know, possibly of the Amish and some of them, that they avoid technology at all costs and they have all sets of rules. And it becomes almost to the absurd and arbitrary and in the, in the eyes of God is absolutely meaningless. Even as Christians, we can turn self-righteous when we make a law of things that the Bible doesn't prohibit. That's why Martin Luther wrote a beautiful book about Christian liberty and the, the, the freedom of the Christian. That we must never make a law out of Christian liberty. That there is a thing where God is silent that is left to the conscience of the Christian. So now in verse 11, the paralytic is caught off guard. He's trying to disculp himself. He, he therefore blames Jesus. 
He doesn't know Jesus' name because Jesus had withdrawn intentionally, slipping out of this crowd, which is again, in coming weeks we'll see, this is characteristic of Jesus. He doesn't want the spotlight. He recognized the dangers of people reacting wrongly whenever he does a miracle. And the, the, the reason is that Jesus doesn't want to give us a show. But again, this open persecution, controversy with these religious leaders. Verse 15, the poor paralytic even cannot keep his mouth shut. And so he reports the name of the one who just healed him to the Jewish authority. And that, friends, doesn't look like the behavior of you would expect from someone who stopped sinning, as we will see later, the call of Jesus. And the leaders, the Jewish leader, began to persecute Jesus. They harass him. They annoy him. They torment him. They are out to get him from this point forward to the end of the gospel. They even sought to kill him. Our text says in verse 15, all the way to murder. Why? Why this hatred? Because he has done these things on the Sabbath. He broke the way they understood the Sabbath command. And the great Jewish rules that have been added to traditions of man. Exodus 31 obviously says that if you break the Sabbath in the Jewish law, you have to be put to death. But, again, this was not the case of Jesus and this man. They are overly applying this law. In verse 17 Jesus opens this debate, and what, what does Jesus say? My father has been working until now. What does that mean? Jesus is playing on words here about the prohibition to work on the Sabbath. And he's saying that the father and what Jesus is doing is not a mundane type of work. He's not doing this to earn food. It's a divine working. That just like God is constantly never ceasing to work, even on a Saturday... God can work as He pleases without breaking the Sabbath. God's providence, every Saturday, otherwise the entire world would collapse. He's still, he's still at work on Saturday. God's, the world is God's residence. God in Genesis works, yes, six days, creates everything that exists. But His resting on the, on the, on the, on the Sabbath did not mean that He became idle. But that He actually took delight in what He worked and Jesus says, I too must work. You see that? That is a very controversial response that the Jewish leaders understand. Jesus is claiming the divine right and privilege to providentially be at work like the Father. He's saying that He is God. This is not nothing but a divine prerogative for Jesus to claim that he's working in connection to healing miraculously a, a, a body of a man. He's saying that he's just like the creator. That he's equal with God. And this open next week, we'll see a whole debate in defense of Jesus from the accusation of the Jewish leaders. And verse 18, in case you missed it, it was such an inflammatory and provocative statement to the point that we should say, it was not the angel who stirred up the water at the pool of Bethesda. It was Jesus. That by this statement, that he did not leave the Jews untouched. All the more they sought to kill him. They made them more mad. More determined than ever to kill him. See that? Because in addition to violating their traditional understanding of the Sabbath. He said that God was his father. And friends, they understood well that this 
was making himself, look at the text, equal with God. Jesus is claiming here to be equal, in equality with the deity, with the Father. He puts himself on the same level as the Creator who can indeed work on, on, on Sabbath. Not like God, but equivalent in quality. In essence, with God. The same identity. This is an unmistakable text. You know why? Because it's uttered by the opponents of Jesus. Those who hate Jesus the most understood that he was making himself equal with God. Uh, this happens again in John 10, 33. We are not stoning you for any good work, but for blasphemy, because you are a mere man and you claim to be God. Once again. And notice both times Jesus never denied. Oh, no, you misunderstood. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not claiming to be God. And, and if he did, he could have spared his own life, by the way. And friends, if you are in a court case, if the opponent himself claims something about the defense that the defense itself want to defend, that, friends, becomes an actual evidence or a dead giveaway that what they're saying is true. And that therefore, we are unmistakably before the fact that Jesus is God once again. Uh, look at the warning in verse 14, however. Just after the miracle, the two, the paralytic who had been healed and Jesus catch up. Jesus is not done with this man. He has healed him physically, but there's something else that he needs to warn him about. He found him into the temple. He was probably jumping up and down and praising. But he must be rebuked if the miracle does not produce the need, needful response. He warns him of a danger greater than the sickness he just recovered from. He says, yes, you have been well. You have been made well. But since this happened, our text says in verse 14, sin no more. Sin no more. Stop sinning. This is a command from Jesus. No longer sin as you did before. Your previous lifestyle. Yes, he was broken. Yes, he was miserable. But he was a sinner. Just like everyone else. And he needs to leave now behind his lifestyle. Now, this man is not necessarily called to be perfect from now on. But however, if the miracle is to achieve his true purpose... There is a call to inward repentance and turning away from sin and trusting in the healer, Jesus Christ. That call still remains. And in fact, this, the fact that he experienced this miracle becomes almost secondary to that. Last, look at the threat right there. The, verse 14. Unless, what does happen, friends, to one who witnessed God's power and fails to repent of his sin? This is a subject we began meditating last time. Unless something worse comes upon you. See that? This is a strong threat from Jesus. There is either a worse sickness that will come upon him. There is either a physical death. Yes, sir. Sometimes God takes away people. Sometimes, not all the time. Or ultimately, the double punishment that will happen in hell forever. For failing to repent, even in the face of the gift of God... Of being healed after 40 years of sicknesses. Augustine once said. It is of no advantage to be near the light. If the eyes are still closed. See that. That instead of believing Jesus is God. And to trust your life. Some witness this miracle. Only to criticize. Remain unrepentant. 
this controversy on the Sabbath will not be the last time. We will see it later, whether the disciples picking grain on the Sabbath, whether Jesus healing someone on the Sabbath, or any of the like. Jesus will constantly be criticized by the Jewish leader for allegedly breaking the Sabbath. That is why in John 7, he will say, Why are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath, I made a man whole body well. See where the problem there is. That when we bind people's conscience to something that is not prescribed by Scripture, it is a very dangerous spot to be. And it's tricky here. You know why? Because, doubly tricky, because in this case, the legalism of the, of the Pharisees lies behind a supposed obedience to a God-given command. That is why in Acts 15, the... Uh, Pharisees to says to early Christian, is it necessary to circumcise the Gentiles, those who are not Jewish like us, it is necessary to circumcise them who believe and order them to keep the whole law, the ceremonial law and other aspects of the law that Jesus had fulfilled. They wanted to go back to that as a way to actually earn favor to God. And so that these religious leaders, instead of looking for the spiritual welfare of God's people, they're putting burdens on God's people. They're interested in what they consider a breach to their man-made ideas. And may this never be true of any of us, friends. Never be true of this church that we remain in this form of self-righteous legalism, but unsensitive to the sufferings of people. I'm moved by the extraordinary things that God does right before our eyes. That's why whenever a Christian goes beyond the realm of Scripture into matters of personal conscience and starts to then criticizing others for those matters, he's stepping his boundaries. Because he's judging others for their transgression of what he's considering sinful in his mind, but not in the mind of God. Not in the Scripture which explains to us where the commandment is. Works of mercy like this one were allowed on the Sabbath. And should not have been considered sinful. This is where law becomes self-righteous legalism. And in past years I examined this Sabbath controversy in the reform circles. There's 10 or 20 different positions that people have according to this command. And I noticed that this discussion produces no love but judgmentalism. And for some reform people I think... Approaching some of the things we believe can become like that. What is more important? What is a secondary? What is a primary issue? We need to have that discernment. And notice even the dismissive way Jesus treats this overemphasis on the Sabbath as an instruction for us. And also notice how this starts the persecution. That persecution comes to Jesus because he ser- when you serve God, you become treated as a criminal even by hypocritical Christians. Even famous religious leaders like these people back then, true servants of God, become under attack by the enemies from within the church, not just without. People are trying to find some fault because perhaps like these religious leaders, they felt their power under threat. And they are so blind and they quench the work of God right before his eyes. That treachery forcing man-made tradition down the throat of a poor man who is overjoyed because of what God has done. He has healed him. All the way to persecuting the Savior in namely of supposedly observing the law of God. You see that? 
The dullness, however, also in the paralytic who is chit-chatting about Jesus to these dangerous leaders to avoid personal repercussions. This evasive tactic seems like he's still interested more in his problem being fixed that, that the one who healed him and trusting in him and changing his life. The one way or the other, this is the, way, the wrong way to react to God's work in your life. But again, notice also once again that Jesus is God from our text. That only God can create life out of death. That this is a direct evidence that just as God during the Sabbath provides and works in creation, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He works, brings life on Saturday just like everyone of the day. And later Christ will come back to this theme of working until the third day. That is when He rested from all of His works. That is when at the cross He can say, I'm done, I'm finished, I can now rest. Because friends, that is the gospel that He works for you when you couldn't contribute anything to your salvation because of your sin. That the good works that we do are only self-righteous like these people, these religious people, they're filthy rags. Jesus instead truly obeys the law of God completely, truly. The essence of this law, He never broke it. He never broke the Sabbath. The prisoners of the law cannot keep it. These religious people, they are still in the cage of the law, but pretended, and then he died to give us his perfect death on the cross. He was raised from the dead. He entered into his rest. And he commands us now to strive to enter to that same rest, which is eternal life through what? Through faith. Not to be hindered by the unbelief, of many who still remain because of their false doctrines or tradition denying biblical teaching of Christ's deity, for example, in this case. We already saw several times that John is unmistakable. So if you want to remain true to God's word, you, you reject teaching that deny that Jesus and God are equal. Many false cults and religious groups claim to be Christians and yet they deny this very point. It seems like Satan loves to, to attack the deity of Christ. Because without it, your salvation is lost. If Jesus is not God, He cannot save you and your humanity from sin. And I know several Muslims, Jehovah Witness, Mormons, and Unitarians. Some of you were telling me weeks ago of the Worldwide Church of God. And so many other cults that, that are denying these things. And again, are taking away the truth of the gospel. But also notice... This recovery from sickness should impress upon us that we worship Jesus as the Creator, as God on earth. That, that, that He is the new creation. He created the world in the beginning together with the Father and the Spirit. But He now brings this new creation. And so the miracle should make you want to go and sin no more. However, here you have people who have mounting evidence. And they're... They become even more entrenched in their unbelief, their self-righteousness. Or like the paralytic, they remain a foolish simpleton who go and tell things, but he doesn't realize that he needs to sin no more. So the more you refuse to believe, notice how the harder your hearts become. That if you remain in your skepticism, you oppose the truth to the point that you hate it, inevitably leads to 
what happens afterwards is murder. Jesus. I mean, that is what is the blaspheme against the Holy Ghost. That in the, fav- in the face of favor, or patience of God, and manifestation of God before yourself, it leads to God to leave you in your hardening till your death. Because God's warning is not taken into account. Then God assumes a different character. Not the compassionate, not the merciful, but the judge, the righteous judge. What more severe punishment do you think that experience the one who hears God's word, witness the power of God, and he still rejects it? That's why unbelief is the greatest sin. That your exposure to God makes you more and more guilty for it. You continue in sin. And this is a tragic consequence, friends. That if you continue to lie about this or that thing, you continue to steal or give in to that sexual sin, you continue in covetousness for things or money or drunkenness, whatever it is, you fail to confess it, you fail to turn away from it, but you cling to it. Instead of sinning no more, beware of the warning of Jesus here. Yeah, God shows you mercy. God may give you a second chance, but the Bible says if we deliberately Keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth. No sacrifice for sin is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Hebrews 10, 26 to 27. You see that the health of your soul is far more important than being healed in your body and then go on. Just like in the Old Testament, we have the tragic death of Eli's son who ministered in the sanctuary, or Shimei who was pardoned for mocking David, but later he disobeys and dies, or Ananias and Sapphires in the New Testament who God took away in a split second for lying to the Holy Spirit and keeping the money. Now, not every sickness is a result of sin. However, there is such a sin that leads to death. And that is the case of the religious leaders that they deliberately refuse to believe in Jesus. They follow, they, they, they transgress his command. They do not love the brethren, but they hate to the point of death, Jesus. And just like for this paralytic, you better make sure to repent. You've been exposed to his word and saw God at work in your life. Sin no more, unless something worse happens to you. And what could be worse, friends, than an eternity in hell separated from God? I'm telling you, 40 years of being crippled are nothing compared to an an eternity of judgment. And we don't know if this man actually truly repented, but I surely hope that you heed now this warning given by the Master. And that is what we see in this turning of the waters. That angels supposedly stirred up the waters. God actually comes down in the flesh. And he's really, oh, he really stirs up the waters of the religious entourage of his day. He makes these waters troublesome waters, we could say. He brings healing to, to those who are needy and poor and desperate. Ministers to the suffering. He hears the long-seated cries that we have. He cares for the endless afflictions that we go through. But he also comes to conflict with those who are proud, self-righteous, and outwardly powerful while they propagate a powerless message because they do not bow down to Jesus as God. They feel their professional religious role is supplanted by this better, more effective way that the Savior offered them. And to them, Jesus proves that He is indeed God. He displays here the fact that He has creative power and He shows that He is Lord of the Sabbath. 
He has authority and provides life even on the Sabbath. And all of this collapsed with the nonsense of these legalistic people. So Jesus said indeed to stir up the waters too. Not for healing, but for judgment. And in this chaos, this big crowd, this great chatting, where is faith? It's almost absent. To the point that Jesus has to come to the man that he just healed and says, Sin no more. Where is faith? Perhaps in you this morning. That you trust, that you take heed of the warning, and you obey the gospel. So that those troublesome waters... No, don't hide from you the identity and the true identity of Jesus.